every day is a brand new adventure. So let's embark on this journey together. City News 570 presents Kitchener Today. Welcome to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in today. Thanks so much for taking the time to tune in, not just to the Mike Farwell Show, but to the show as well. We have quite the show lined up today, including some talk about five areas where Canada needs to step up on the war in Ukraine, what Paxlovid is, uh, we'll get a, we'll get uh, kind of a Q and A up on what the antiviral COVID nineteen drug that is now available uh, in Ontario, what that's all about, uh, why lowering the voting age in Canada is such a good idea. We'll speak to an MP from the New Democratic Party uh, in British Columbia about an MP there about uh, why they tabled a, uh, a bill to lower the voting age. At two o'clock, we'll talk about the Raptors. And how Shaq, which he walked back his comments, but Shaq did think that the Raptors were going to get swept in four against the Sixers in their first round playoff matchup that's coming up this week. He did walk back those comments, though, so we'll talk to Michael Grange from Sportsnet about that. And then, of course, the tech spotlight at 2.30. We'll get into that as well. But first, I wanted to start off the show today with a resident of an area of Cambridge that is fairly new uh, when it comes to the the McQueen-Shaver Boulevard, uh, and they want some noise walls to be added to that area. Uh, And the region proposed adding more of those walls, and we speak to a resident of that area who lives in the area uh, for some insight about why those walls would be useful. Uh, Roman Berry is our guest this afternoon. Roman, thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, Roman. How are you? Well, lots of complaints, but no one will listen. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, Roman, let's start, I guess, uh, with the uh, the McQueen Shaver Boulevard uh, about why, uh, you know, in that area there were no walls put up in the first place when this area was kind of developed. Well, the uh, the original study that was done 11 years ago stated that there would be um, no noise walls Required and the region of Waterloo's um, requirements for noise attenuation is that there is an increase of five decibels uh, louder and that it is over 60 decibels. And this is a higher requirement than the Ministry of Environment and the Ministry of Transportation, which clearly states that an increase of five decibels alone requires attenuation. Uh, They classified this area as urban, the same as downtown Toronto, and it was actually farm fields, which comes at a level of 45 decibels. Uh, For people that don't know what uh, decibel readings are, 5 is very noticeable, 10 is double the sound, and 20 is four times the sound. So we are now going to 
from 37 decibels of an average day to upwards of 59. So this will be four times as loud as it has ever been here. That's why the residents are requesting attenuation. So when it comes to how that area is now versus how it was when those studies were conducted, what are, I suppose, the biggest differences now uh, compared to back then? Because, you know, that that area is more well-developed than it ever has been, right? Well, the difference is behind us was was farmer's fields in a forest. (laughs) Now we have, um, now we, it looks like we live on a baseball diamond because they put lighting up that they told us would not be put up. They put uh, highway level lighting across the entire roadway, which lights up all of our backyards. We and the sound, the noise is unbelievable, and it is it's only been open for say six months or so. Inside the home, uh, if I turn my TV up to forty five, which would be on the on the system I have, that would be forty five decibels. We have to turn it louder to drown out the trucks. Further, there's no privacy because we have a walkway where people can stare directly into your home now. There's nothing preventing that. The region states that they will be putting uh, semi-mature vegetation, but they they, uh, have gone silent on providing any further information on it. Now, for you, what kind of difference... uh would this have if these noise walls were were implemented and, and put up uh, when it comes to uh, the the difference in the noise now versus when they're up? Has there been something to show that, uh, you know, that would make a significant difference on your daily life uh, when it comes to living in that area? Absolutely. Um there are there are residents who are losing sleep who are looking at selling their homes they're unable to sleep during the days because this area of development wasn't intended to have a road of this magnitude behind us or what they are now planning to use as a truck bypass so with the larger trucks uh, people that are working night shifts are losing sleep there are children that are not sleeping through the nights uh, actually seeking medical attention to help them with that there's an increased level of anxiety depression there's study after study after study that shows that an increase uh, uh, an increase of 10 decibels alone can affect the quality of life and physical health, physical and mental health. So, yeah, having walls up or some, it does any type of attenuation, whether it be proper burns, vegetation, noise walls, some type of attenuation is needed. What has been the response uh, from regional council members in in that area uh, when it comes to uh, listening to some of the issues that you're bringing up today? Regional Council has been receptive. They acknowledge that they don't feel that things were done accurately. Uh, there were several errors found in the initial studies that were done that were pointed out. For example, zero levitation or elevation of the roadway. This roadway sits approximately 20 feet above my home, where you can look directly into my second floor bedrooms from the uh, walkway. They've been very receptive. Um, they've been receptive. It, it's been the planning department has seemed to be rather non-transparent about the whole matter what makes you believe that they've been non-transparent in in the matter there well at least three to four emails sent out this week without a single response emails sent last week without a single response um the dismissiveness or avoiding of questions we have provided reports we have hired uh there has been residents that actually hired an engineering firm on their own 
that uh, for a sound study that requested or recommended attenuation and those emails have gone unresponded to. It's just feels that if you're transparent, you're going to have a communication. Communication has to be bi-directional, not on, or not singular. When it comes to those frustrations that you're you're sharing, uh, when it comes to those emails that have been sent, have have that has that been shared with those regional council members as well? When it comes to uh, you not receiving any responses to uh, try and get something figured out here from uh, those people that you're reaching out to. Absolutely. The uh, and the uh, the general response we get from the councillors is that they will address with staff, and I don't doubt that they do. Um, I feel, in all likelihood, here's a, an example of non-transparency. We all received a notice on March 31st that the new sound study was complete and that it would be made readily available for all residents by April 6th, so that the meeting that is happening today presenting this can have delegations from the neighborhood. Uh, to date, this study has still not been made available, uh, regardless of the request. In fact, uh, another request from another resident went to a counselor asking that the meeting be delayed because they're not making the study available to us. That's what I mean by non-transparency. And of course, that you know, having access to that study would allow for better commentary, I suppose, when it comes to being a delegate at council, correct? One hundred percent. Considering that, considering that the first report had several errors in it, um, reading the entire report would give a better picture. Unfortunately, just the very limited information of the report, which says that the region does not require to put sound walls on a lane law drive, at least. We just saw. I was just forwarded a bunch of pictures from one of the residents that show where the areas were uh, done or where the studies were done, and they were in. Each yard that it was done in had it at natural berm or vegetation like mature trees or a shed. And those things provide sound attenuation. You can only think like, well, were these places cherry-picked as being what would be the quietest areas to conduct a study? One can only wonder. Uh, for you, Roman, what's what's the solution, I suppose, that you hope that Regional Council comes out with when it when it comes to this situation? Is it just the, the walls that need to be put up, or is it more that needs to be done to help prevent that sound from, from leaking through into your home? Well, can you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. I heard a little tinge I'm there, yeah. Right now. Sorry, I had to turn up my volume so I could hear you there. What was the question? What 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 is your hope when it comes to the outcome of uh, regional council's decision? Is it just the walls being put up, or would you like to see the walls and more be put up to help prevent the noise from from being as overbearing as it is? Whether it be walls, whether it be berms, whether it be mature vegetation, anything to lower the sound. I'm I'm not picky about it. I would like them to be transparent and put a proper study, do a study that reflects the entire area, not just cherry-picked locations that um, will skew results in their favor. So I would like to see, absolutely, I would like to, whether it be walls, whether it be vegetation, something to attenuate the sound, we would like the shields put on the lighting that we were told would be put on the lighting so that we weren't living in the back of a baseball diamond, and some type of privacy so, so people aren't looking directly into our home. 
Uh, Roman, thanks so much for uh, uh, taking the time today to uh, share some of these concerns and uh, hopefully uh, regional staff and regional council are receptive to some of these issues that you've brought up today. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks for reaching out to me. You're welcome. That was Roman Berry and a resident of the area of the McQueen Shaver Boulevard saying that there needs to be some sort of noise attenuation put up in that area knowing that there's elevation of the road uh, when it, in, with the homes in that area and some of that sound leaking through. Um, I did hear some of the... I didn't know Roman who was in his backyard at the time of the interview, but I did hear some of the noise in the background, and it, it wasn't very... It was faint. I will admit that. It was faint. But I can only imagine how much of an impact residents in that area might have felt when it comes to uh, some of that heavy, heavy machinery that, that uh, Roman was talking about or the heavy uh, trucks that drive through that area that Roman was talking about. Usually, and I say usually because I, I've, I've seen it, in, you know, in probably areas that, that require it for sure. Uh, much like when, you know, they redid the 401 and I saw some of the retaining walls being put up in, in some areas uh, right at Franklin and the 401 uh, when they redid all that. I, I saw those walls being put up. Uh, you can all, only imagine uh, you can only imagine why this wasn't thought of to begin with. And if there were mistakes in the report, like Roman mentioned, Why aren't why why isn't the study being made available ahead of tonight's council meeting? And that's something that Roman said that was promised, uh, and it would be able to be viewed well ahead of the meeting tonight. And Roman says that it's not available. Would have loved to have a regional council member on the show today to talk about this, uh, but they were in committee, and our requests were denied. So. Obviously, everyone's busy, and we understand that. These issues need to be figured out. And Roman and the residents in that area feel like there needs to be some sort of noise attenuation to help prevent some of that noise leaking. I can only imagine trying to watch the hockey game at 7 o'clock at night, and you have to turn up your TV to 50 because the trucks in the area are making so much noise that you can't even hear the play-by-play. Or even whatever show that you want to watch doesn't even have to be hockey. That's just what I'd be watching at that time if I lived in that area. Love to hear your thoughts on this. 519-570-2545-1-800-570-5715, star 570 on your cell phones. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. We'll be back with your calls. There's an increased level of anxiety, depression. There's study after study after study that shows that an increase of 10 decibels alone can affect the quality of life and physical health, physical and mental health. So, yeah, having walls up or some, it doesn't, any type of attenuation, whether it be proper burns, vegetation, noise walls, some type of attenuation is needed. That was Roman Berry, a resident of the area sharing some concerns that he has with no noise attenuation in the McShaver... Uh, I always get this wrong. The McQueen Shaver Boulevard. New area of Cambridge. A new... Uh, it's only been open for about six months now, and I haven't really been in that area of Cambridge quite often. I haven't even driven on this on this road yet, so forgive me about that. 
Uh, we have Bob on the line. Bob, what are your thoughts on this issue? <laughs> oh, boy. These new designers, developers, or builders, whatever, I don't think they got a clue how to do this proper, you know? Uh, when they were building all these bypasses around Franklin and all that, all these houses had a ton, and I mean a ton of bush and trees all back along there in between. And they went in there and just flattened it, just ripped it right out, flattened it out and put up them stupid walls. There was no reason for that, but they did it, just like they did when they did Can-Am Parkway down on uh, 24 there where the YMCA is all the way up through to Town Line Road and all that. A ton, a ton of bush up there, and they went in there and just flattened it right out, took it all out, and nothing. So, yeah, I can see why everybody's so pissed off. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Uh, I can see why, too. I can only imagine the frustrations that they have when it comes to um, living everyday life. You know, I I don't live in an area that has a high traffic area like this area is in Cambridge. Uh, but if I did, and if there weren't any retaining or any walls being put up to try and prevent some of that noise, I think I'd be upset, too. I think it's it's natural for us to be upset when, you know, you you struggle with doing everyday things, especially at night, and especially if you have young kids, you know. It'd be hard to put them to bed if there's constant noise from trucks driving through that area or or constant traffic in that area. It because I I I mean Franklin boulevard in in cambridge alone is a busy area like you know that whole stretch of road is is busy right there's a reason why they put roundabouts all throughout franklin boulevard it's to keep the traffic moving right and to prevent people from idling so of course naturally if you add an addition onto you know uh a road like franklin like this mcqueen shaver boulevard it's going to be busy and like Roman said, they did the studies back when that area was still a farmer's field. It's no longer that. So what gives? Hopefully, regional council will say that they need to put some sort of attenuation up for them in that area. And everyone can get on with their lives because I don't think anyone wants to just up and sell their house because planning wasn't done the right way the first time and that's you know that's easy for me to say sitting behind a microphone right now not actually being part of any planning division of the region of waterloo but you would think that you know once the area gets developed more maybe a new noise study would have helped things along and yes they take time and yes you need to wait until people move into that area, I suppose. Or just build the damn wall. And then you won't have this issue when people start moving in and they hear all these trucks. Especially when there's, like Roman says, some elevation to that road in that area. So we'll see where that request goes. I, I do wish that they had... I do wish that they had access to that report that Roman mentioned before tonight's council meeting. Uh, so they could, you know, digest some of the information in that study. Uh, and as Roman said, there were mistakes done in the first few studies that have been acknowledged. So is this taking chance that there's more mistakes in this new report? Or did they get it right? 
guess we'll find out tonight at council because we can't read that report anywhere. Not available. That's according to Roman. We'll see where this goes. Hopefully in the favor of the residents of that area so they can just get on with their lives and don't have to listen to loud trucks all night and stay up all night. We're heading to the news. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Conversation piece today about five areas where Canada needs to step up on the war in Ukraine. There's been a lot of questions around why we haven't seen more from other countries in their efforts to help Ukraine uh, with the Russian invasion. And speaking to us this afternoon uh, about this piece is Marta Dikchuk, an associate professor of history and political science specializing in Ukraine at Western University. Marta, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Uh, So Marta, in in your piece, you outline some areas where you believe Canada uh, needs to step up to helping Ukraine. So uh, what, what are some of the things that, that you think uh, our country needs to be doing to better support uh, the Ukrainian people? Well, I'd like to start by just quoting Ukraine's President Zelensky, who repeatedly says, thank you for everything you're doing, but please, we need more help. And so the five areas that I've identified are diplomacy, military, economic, humanitarian, and information. And Canada has been working in all of those areas, but they certainly could be doing a lot more than they are. So when it comes to what they're doing versus what we believe they should be doing, what's the difference between uh, you know them upping some of their supports in, in each of those categories that you mentioned? Well, some things are easier than others. In the area of diplomacy, that's perhaps the easiest place where Canada could do better. Canada and Ukraine have a very long relationship. Canada was the first country to recognize Ukraine's independence 30 years ago. They have a special relationship, which Canada constantly repeats. Um, And Canada has been making statements condemning Russia's invasion. Um, However, the farthest any Canadian official has gone is Poland. What we're seeing is British Prime Minister Boris Johnson traveled to Kyiv by train, met with Ukraine's president. They did a walkabout in central Kyiv. The president of the European Parliament traveled to Kyiv, addressed Ukrainian Parliament, met with President Zelensky. The European Commission has reopened their office in Kyiv. The Lithuanian government has reopened their embassy. And Canada has not done any of that. And furthermore, a lot of countries are expelling diplomats from their countries. Diplomatic relations have to stay open because countries need to speak to each other. But Russia has huge diplomatic representation in Canada. I was at a rally in downtown Toronto on Sunday where Ukraine's consul general said, why is the Russian consulate still here, business as usual? The Russian consul 
is sipping lattes and going for walks in the park while his government is bombing my country. Why have these people not been asked to leave? Why are they still welcome in this country? And many countries have downsized their diplomatic representations in, in, from Russia, and Canada has not. Is it uh, is it more so uh, Canada trying to keep both uh, you know options open when it comes to the diplomacy instead of just shutting down, or or it, you know do we need to keep some sort of diplomatic ties to Russia even though that they're doing these th- uh, these things well, to Ukraine? Yeah, sorry, that's precisely what I said. Diplomatic relations need to stay open. They need to be able to communicate. But Russia's cultural attaché doesn't need to be here with his family. And right. all of these other people who are not doing the important political stuff, why are they still welcome here? I mean, diplomatic missions are huge, and they don't all need to be here. I'm not advocating cutting diplomatic relations. Absolutely not. They need to stay open. They need to keep talking. But they don't all need to be here. I mean, the consulate in Toronto doesn't need to stay open. And when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, Canadian officials, uh, you know, making uh, uh, reacting to to some of the concerns that that uh, people who have ties to Ukraine are sharing when it comes to uh, those uh, Russian diplomats being here, is 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 that something that that our Canadian government is is looking to uh, making sure that you know they don't need to be here and they can uh, you know take them out uh, take them out, out out of Canada and out of those embassies. Many countries have already asked some Russian diplomatic staff to leave. So this is happening in other countries, and Canada has not done that yet. Is there is there a reason why Canada hasn't taken that action uh, versus some of the other countries that have? Well, that's a question to our Prime Minister and perhaps Foreign Minister. <laughs> that's right. Question. Fair I enough. Hear. Fair enough. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to the military uh, section that you write about, um, that Canada has been supporting Ukraine via training and arms supplies even before this war. Um, but but again, those calls for help that Ukrainians need more help. Uh, how can Canada help them militarily uh, more so than what they're already doing? Well, Canada, as you mentioned, has already been helping. But again, as Ukraine's president said to all the NATO leaders, please give us 1% of what you have. NATO has tremendous military capacity and finances, and Ukraine is asking for just a little bit of it. They are defending themselves against a huge military power that's far superior to them. Um, And there are numerous ways that countries could be stepping up their aid, both by directly supplying arms and by supplying money. Um, Canada's uh, retired General Rick Hillier was speaking at a rally, and he said there are all of these things that Ukraine needs militarily on the open market. If countries like Canada just give them funds, they could buy some of this equipment for themselves. Uh, and, and when it comes to, you know, increasing that help, is is there s- sort of a worry in uh, uh, Canadian diplomats' heads that, you know, if we do supply more of that help that, uh, you know, potentially could uh, harm some of the relations we have with other countries around the world? Or 
or precisely even with Russia? Or is, is that something that, you know, they don't even have to worry about right now, knowing that, you know, Ukraine needs the help and we have the ties with Ukraine to be able to uh, make sure that we take care of those people over any other diplomatic ties that we might have? Well, I don't know that Canada's diplomatic ties with Russia are more important than saving Ukrainian civilians from being bombed. So I, I just think that that's um, we we need to prioritize what what has to happen here. And you know there are many other areas where Canada also has been helping, but could do a lot more um, in the economic sphere, in the humanitarian area. Um, this what we've seen is unprecedented economic sanctions against Russia. We've never seen this level of sanctions, but it's not enough because Russia's economy is continuing to trade internationally. So they're continuing to make money uh, and using that money to fund the war against Ukraine. And what Ukraine is calling for is cut off these relations, cut off their economic capacity, which will then prevent them from being able to kill us. And that's an area where, again, Canada could be stepping up more. There are a lot of Russian businesses that are still operating freely in Canada and making money here. And that money is going to fund the war. And I don't know that that should be happening. When it comes to uh, trying to make a decision, I suppose, on on the government's behalf, and, and, and you know, again, this might be a, a question for the Prime Minister, but, uh, you know, w- when it comes to making a, decisions like these and, and, and trying to increase areas where we can help Ukraine, uh, you know, what are what are the what are the factors that need to be considered, uh, you know, when it when it comes to uh, everything that you outline in, in your piece here? Uh, from what we're doing to to what we need to be doing more of? Well, we're now living through a time in history that is a game changer because we're witnessing in real time a war that is aimed at pretty much wiping off of people. And these sorts of things will be written about in history books. And it will be then that people will say, well, what did Canada do? What did the U.S. do? What did Britain do? And Canada is a wealthy country that is in a position to help. And Canada's international reputation was built on being a good citizen. And we're also living through a difficult economic period with the pandemic and various other things. Um, But there are times in history where you really need to stand up and take a, a position and be counted. And this is one of those times. You mentioned that information uh, is 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 key uh, to to kind of uh, you know uh, dispel some of the misinformation or disinformation that that Russia is known to 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 put out there on on the internet and on uh, news agencies in Russia. Uh, how can Canada uh, help when it comes to uh, the information that's being shared in Western media versus what we what we could be seeing uh, you know from Russian sources of media? Well, this is a question to someone like yourself and all your colleagues and all the journalists in Canada and internationally. Ukrainian journalists are appealing to you guys and saying, please use the correct terminology. It's not the Ukraine crisis. It's Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's not uh, Ukraine is causing a crisis. Ukraine is being invaded and uh, bombed. So 
it's up to journalists to look at what's happening and report accurately. It's, it's really not that difficult. Russia is deliberately trying to cloud the issue and putting out statements like this is a special operation to denazify Ukraine. Now, if journalists simply repeat that rather than saying Russia is presenting its military invasion as a special operation, it's the job of journalists to articulate things and make them clear to societies rather than simply repeating things. Is is there more that uh, that the federal government can do to to uh, encourage or to uh, uh, show uh, you know people in in Western media on 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 what sources are out there that that need to be followed when it comes to uh, sharing what's happening in Ukraine? Uh, you know, obviously from where we sit here in Kitchener, it's it's uh, you know we can still cover the story, but you know we don't have reporters that are there. So so what are some of the things? I suppose that the federal government can encourage when it comes to uh, how people consume some of that media and, and when where to go for it? Well, the Canadian government has blocked all the Russian propaganda media from broadcasting in Canada. But this is not something that is in the domain of the government. This is really the responsibility of journalists and media outlets. And I appreciate that when you're in Kitchener, you can't possibly have your own reporter in Ukraine. But there are many reporters who are there. Associated Press, Reuters are constantly putting out information. There are Ukrainian media outlets. I would point you to a publication called the Kyiv Independent. They are producing extremely good quality English language news every five minutes. So all journalists need to do is go online, read what they're saying, and you've got all that information presented to you. Uh, Marta, uh, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to discuss this piece with us today uh, on on what we can be doing better here uh, when it comes to uh, uh, Russians' invasion of Ukraine. So thanks so much for, for taking the time here. Thank you for your interest in this story, and thank you for having me. That was Marta, Marta Dickchuk there that... Uh, wrote this piece in the conversation. Uh, she's from Western University uh, and works in uh, history and political science, specializing in Ukraine affairs. And uh, she mentioned some of the areas where we can better support the people of Ukraine. And and uh, those areas that she mentions is diplomacy, military economics and human humanitarian efforts rather and information and uh she mentioned that diplomacy is probably the easiest one where we can step up our game uh from canada's perspective uh you know we have heard from uh the president of ukraine uh mr zelensky about you know we appreciate everything that you're doing uh but more needs to be done and he has repeated that statement over and over and over again and Marta mentioned some of the other world leaders that have had uh, that have had who have gone to Ukraine to see what's going on there. And the furthest that any of our uh, diplomats have have gone is Poland. So what? So why? Why is that? I suppose is is a question that gets raised on on why you know we see other world leaders on the world stage going to these areas are going to Kiev, but not, not Canada. She does. Marta did mention that this is something that obviously will go in the history books of, you know, what, 
what we're seeing in front of us will go down as something that uh, gets written about in history books. And those questions will be asked on what did Canada do? What did, what did countries like France do? What did the UK do? What did, you know, all, all the countries around Ukraine, what did they do? What did the US do to help? And I think, you know, in her piece, she mentions some of those areas where, you know, Canada does need to step their game up in this in this situation here. We have Alex on the phone. Alex, good afternoon. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to ask her, why did Russia invade the Ukraine? I don't really hear that question being asked much, which I'm curious as to why, but why did they invade the Ukraine? You know what, Alex? That, what, that, yeah, I mean, that's something that, from her her perspective, um, you know, maybe she would have given a different answer than the, what we've heard. Uh, you know that that that's something that uh, that I, I'm not sure what how she would answer that. Well, exactly. Like for example, I know when the United States invaded Iraq, there were supposed to be weapons of mass destruction, so that was the reason they did that. Now it turned out that that was total a lie, but at least they said why they were doing it. So I'm just curious, what, why is Russia invading the Ukraine? They, I mean, they must have a reason. I, and that, I, well, I mean, I, maybe, maybe the reason's a lie. I don't know, but at least, you know, obviously there would be some reason. I, I think that's we should we should at least hear what the reason is. Yeah, I, I, the reason I don't know, Alex. You know what? Even even if you know Putin came out and said the exact reason why, I, I think there would be skeptics on either side, right? I, I, you know, I, I don't know if we would ever get the real reason on, on why Russia thought that this is something they needed to do. I, I'm not but, sure, right? Which well, it's true, because, I mean, we still don't know why the United States invaded Iraq. It, it certainly was not for weapons of mass destruction, because there was none there. Which, that we know, so we know that wasn't the reason they invaded them. Why, we'll, we'll probably never know why exactly they went in there, but like that, I'd like to know what what's Putin's stated reason for going in there, and then he say, okay, does it make any sense? Is it like I remember the weapons of mass destruction at the time? I said, oh well, yeah, that makes sense. Then of course you find out that it was a complete lie. Um, but I'd like to know Putin's reasons. Um, there's always a reason, right? Now whether he says it's because they didn't want him to join NATO and maybe that's a lie, I don't know. But I think that's something that should be talked about a little bit more often. Yeah, and thanks, Alex. And a- anything that you know. Unless you ask Putin himself, I don't know if you'll ever get that answer, right? Uh, you know, Alex, you mentioned that we might not even know why the U.S. did that to Iraq, right? I, like, those are things that that I don't even know we'll get the real answer to. And it, it's, you know, when, when it comes to Putin even giving an honest answer about that, I, I, I don't know the man. I don't know what kind of answer he would even give if he was directly asked that. I don't even know if there was ever an opportunity for anyone to ever ask him why this is something that Russia needed to do. Mary, good afternoon. Oh, hi. Well, I don't think we have to dwell on this. He has the vision of establishing the old USSR. He doesn't need to give reasons. He just does it because he can he wants to become the grand poobah of the old USSR. That's why he's doing it. Nothing else. All right, Mary, thanks so much for uh, weighing in on that. That could, that could be a reason that Mary mentions, just for power. 
but I don't I don't know if we'll ever get an honest answer from Vladimir Putin on why this was something he had to do now. We've seen we've seen aggressions against Ukraine before from the Russians. But on this scale, this scale is much larger than what we've ever seen. And I don't know if you can even justify what's going on there. Because I don't think we'll get an honest answer from Putin. And I don't think that any media that, that reports on it that isn't independent in Russia will, would want to share what the real reason is. We have to head to a break and we'll come back with more on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Talking about ways or areas that Canada needs to step up on the war in Ukraine. And we heard from our guest, Marta Dickchuk, that there are areas that Canada needs to have stronger support of the Ukrainian people. She mentions diplomacy is one, military is the other, economics and humanitarian efforts, and then information. Those are the areas that she mentions that need to be stepped up on. Maybe maybe one of our Canadian diplomats need to go to the, to Ukraine. We've seen other world leaders do it. Not ours, though. They've gone as far as Poland. And the BBC reported, uh, to answer Alex's question, uh, they did a story, the BBC did, on uh, what Putin's goal is when it comes to uh, this invasion. And it does mention that, uh, you know, Putin doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. But I don't know if that's the real Putin answer that, that he would give us on, on why this invasion of Ukraine is something that needed to be done. Because as you know, uh, you know, there are NATO allies that are surrounding Belarus and Ukraine uh, getting closer to Russia. And if that worries Mr. Putin, I don't, I don't know if that's something that, you know, needed to invade Ukraine or, or is the reason why. Um, but the BBC reported that's one of the reasons uh, that that this could be why uh, Mr. Putin thought this was something that needed to be done. And I don't know if we'll ever get the real reason on that, but that's that's what the BBC reported. Uh, that was just this week as well in one of their reports. So we'll see if any of our Canadian diplomats have the courage to step up any of those areas that Marta mentioned, our guest, uh, in any of those uh, five areas. Uh, we're going to head to the news and then we'll come back with more of Kitchener Today on Sydney News 570.
Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Monday marked the first COVID-19 update that we've seen from uh, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health. And that's when Dr. Moore announced that the province would expand eligibility for the antiviral treatments and COVID-19 PCR testing amid a sixth wave of the virus that he declared uh, in that update on Monday. Uh, And that includes uh, the accessibility of uh, Paxlovid uh, that is uh, a treatment that that came out in late 2021 and supplies were were very limited when that did come out. Um, And it took a long time to make those tablets. And joining us today on the show to talk more about what Paxlovid is, is Kelly Grinrod, a professor in pharmacy at the University of Waterloo. Uh, Kelly, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Kelly, I guess when it comes to uh, Paxlovid, what's what's kind of the biggest difference between this and what a vaccine offers? So a vaccine helps you build immunity before you get infected. So your body recognizes the virus very early and can fight it off before you develop severe illness. So, you know, early on, it did help us. It, it helped, uh, vaccines helped us be less contagious. And certainly there's some evidence that the boosters do help us be less contagious if we do get sick. But the real ultimate goal in, in vaccination is that if you do get COVID, there's a lot going around right now. Hopefully, if you're fully vaccinated with your boosters, you're very unlikely to have a severe case of COVID that requires hospitalization for care. Now, the antivirals are different. The antivirals are something that you take once you have COVID. Uh, This one in particular, Paxlovid, is when you have mild symptoms early in an infection, you take this medicine, and it stops or slows the virus from replicating in your body so your body can fight it off and get rid of it. And you need to give this treatment really early when you just have mild symptoms because it aims to prevent all the the bad inflammatory stuff that COVID can cause that tends to wind people up in hospitals. So this is specifically an antiviral given in mild COVID before it becomes severe to prevent it from becoming severe. What what was the, I guess, delay when it comes to making this more accessible to Ontarians uh, versus, you know, the 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 vaccine? Because it, it does seem like it they both kind of have their own use and work in different ways. Was there was there something holding uh, up uh, having this more avail uh, more accessible, I suppose, to people in the province of Ontario? Yeah, there's a few things. So early on, it was supply, as you've mentioned. We just didn't have enough of it. You know, and that happened with vaccines really early on. We didn't have a lot of vaccines, so it was very targeted to a very specific group. But we have a really good supply now. Now, there are a couple of things that restrict its usefulness. So the first is that Paxlovid is useful when people have a high risk of developing severe COVID. So if you're someone who is relatively healthy or you're fully vaccinated, meaning you've had your boosters, like so you've had your third dose, for example, or if you're older, even your fourth dose now, if you've done all of those things and you're otherwise healthy, you have a good immune system, it's unlikely that this drug is going to help you much at all. This drug was actually studied in people who were unvaccinated, who had at least one risk factor for ending up in hospital. You know, they could be quite a bit older and have some health conditions, for example, and are not vaccinated. 
And those people, Paxlovid, reduce the risk of needing hospital care or death by about 89%, 88%, 89%. So that's really effective, specifically targeted at people who are not vaccinated and have high risk. So for us, one of the questions was, well, who should we use this for? You know, it's not for your everyday people. Maybe you're worried well. We will call people who are fully vaccinated, otherwise healthy, but they're worried. It's not really useful in that group. But we are using it a lot in people who have a weakened immune system from cancer treatment or they've had an organ transplant. And when this eligibility that just expanded yesterday, you're saying it's really still targeting older people, people not yet vaccinated, people who have multiple health conditions. That's the focus of treatment. So that had limited the uptake a bit. And I think people just don't know. So the people who are eligible and at risk and would benefit have no idea this is an option for them. When when it comes to the uh, the the studies that you mentioned there, uh, uh, Kelly, a moment ago about uh, you know how we can use this and and who we can use it in, uh, was there a, a big de- deferring option? I suppose when it when it comes to uh, you know how it was how it's made or, or how it's uh, being uh, distributed to uh, maybe people who uh, can't take a vaccine for X factors, but this is kind of more something that is uh, something. That, that is is better for them to take or it's it's more uh you know so, something that i guess yeah i guess just better for them to take is, is there something that that kind of differentiates that from the vaccine uh yeah i think right now one of the things we have to consider is if you look at who is in hospital who's still ending up in hospital who's getting COVID sick enough that they need icu care for example those are the people, those are the risk factors, the types of people who are really most likely to benefit from Paxlovid. The things that were likely to bring them into hospital are the things that mean that this is a good option for them. There is a concern right now. You know, when you talk to pharmacists and primary care and some of the other sites, there's a worry that people who are really low risk are going to demand that they're eligible and that they, they deserve treatment. And one of the sentiments I hear people say is, well, I did everything right. I got vaccinated. It's not fair that I can't get Paxlovid, but someone who didn't get vaccinated can get Paxlovid. And one of our challenges is we have to really try and and, and turn that around and say, actually, you did everything you could to reduce your risk by getting vaccinated. That's why this is not a useful treatment in you. But if for some reason you couldn't get vaccinated, maybe allergy, or you couldn't respond well to a vaccine, maybe a weakened immune system, or you did choose to not get vaccinated, then this is now an option that we can use to lower your likelihood of needing hospital care, but also to take some of that pressure off of the hospitals, which are really starting to struggle again, right? Is, is this is this something that um, that uh, you know could be uh, better better used? I suppose, like, would this have have changed any anything uh, when it comes to it being brought to the market with the vaccines? Uh, when it comes to vaccination uptake, if if we had the accessibility to this drug. Uh, as well as uh, the vaccines at the same time, would this have changed people's thought process, I suppose, around the vaccine in any way or or being able to take something that uh, isn't a vaccine but can help you prevent being ill from COVID-19? Would that have changed anything? I know. I'm not sure it would have. I think our vaccines are still our best bets. They're going to reduce our risk the most reliably. Um, and they're the easy, you know, it's always easier to give kind of one dose of something well ahead of time, or even just in the case of the vaccine, you know, a couple of doses plus the booster well ahead of infection, because with those, you're going to get the additional benefit of reducing um, contagiousness. Again, it's not perfect with Omicron. Omicron's been a real challenge. 
but it does reduce it a bit. You know, some of the other questions that we have to answer with this too are, well, where are we at with things like long COVID? You know, how well are our vaccinations working in long COVID? People are worried about that, um, the inflammatory condition in kids, things like that. But also with this treatment, it's the same idea. So people are then saying, well, if I get COVID, I want to take Paxlovid to prevent maybe getting long COVID. It does, we don't have any evidence of that yet. So what's really interesting about these two is they're actually very similar in a way. Both the vaccination and the drug treatment aim to reduce your likelihood of needing hospital care. They do it slightly differently. I will add on one thing, though, that, that really sets them apart. Paxlovid has a lot of drug interactions, and that's part of what restricted its usefulness at the beginning. It interacts with so many medications and sometimes in complicated ways. So when people are going in now to get Paxlovid, it's taking maybe 30 minutes of talking with a hospital physician or pharmacist or the assessment center to be assessed, to get the full med list, to look for drug interactions, to change some of the regular meds they're taking. Could be some blood pressure pills, there's a, maybe an asthma inhaler, an antipsychotic, a cholesterol pill. There's a whole bunch of medication drug interactions that we have to manage. That adds complexity, and that's also why if you have gotten all your vaccines and you're lower, now you're lower risk, that's really preferred. It's much simpler, much more straightforward, probably a lot safer too, Whereas if you're not in that situation and maybe you had that weakened immune system that you couldn't respond to a vaccine, now we've got this treatment that we can use as a backup for you to further reduce that risk if the vaccination, either you didn't receive it or it doesn't work as well for you or your health is quite frail, even in the context of being vaccinated. Uh, when it comes to Pax- Paxlovid, uh, is, there, is there anything that shows, any studies that have shown uh, any adverse reactions to it in, in people who have taken it or anything like that, uh, kind of kind of like what we've seen with, with the vaccine in, in some who have taken it uh, and have had adverse effects? Yep, so Paxlovid has two ingredients in it. There's the antiviral called Nermatrelvir, and then there's a drug called a boosting agent, which helps us get higher levels of Nermatrelvir, and that's called Ritonavir. Ritonavir is an old drug. It's been around for a long time. We know lots about it. And Nermatrelvir, the antiviral part of it, is the newer one. We know from the studies that uh, a funny taste in the mouth is one of the main side effects people complain of. So a bit of a metallic taste, can be a foul metallic taste in the mouth that lasts for the treatment. So you're taking oral tablets at home twice a day for five days. That's how you take Paxlovid, with or without food. But people complain throughout the day that they, they get this funny taste in their mouth. We're also hearing that diarrhea can be a side effect with it. Um, but for the most part, when we're talking with the assessment centers, that we're hearing that it's generally pretty well tolerated. But like with the vaccinations, they're going to keep monitoring for any new or emerging side effects that come out once it's used in the broader population. It's being used in Canada. It's also being used in the U.S., for example. And just like with vaccinations, we're always monitoring what we call post-marketing. Uh, monitoring after it's in the market we're still looking for any you know, rare or unusual side effects that maybe weren't captured in the trial uh how uh, how many times i suppose uh have trials been uh put on this before it came to market was there several rounds of trials uh before we had enough data to to know that this is something that that could help prevent uh you know the severe the severity of illness with covid-19 Yep. As with any drug, you've got your initial, so you've, got, you've discovered your molecule, then you have it in a small number of people, then a larger number of people, then your big trial, which can be in thousands of people. Um, and then what we're seeing with Paxlovid is there's a couple of different trials. So the one that's been published 
is the one I mentioned earlier, that if you are, if for people who were not vaccinated, who had a risk factor for developing severe COVID, it was specifically studied in people who had developed a symptom and they started Paxlovid within five days of developing symptoms. So actually what's important to know about this is it's really, really important that if you have a symptom you think is COVID and you're for some reason at high risk of developing severe COVID, again, you might be older, unvaccinated, weakened immune system, whatever. It's really important that you get a test as soon as possible. So you can call the COVID assessment center to get a test, for example. And then you would, the most important thing is Paxlovid needs to be started within five days of those symptoms starting. So early on, we have another drug that's another option. If Paxlovid isn't good for you, they might recommend a drug called remdesivir or there's an inhaler called budesonide. So there are other treatment options, but they have to be started early. We're still waiting for the trial on this that was done in people who are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated with a risk factor, the more kind of moderate risk. We don't quite have the research on that group yet. Is there any timeline on that research, Kelly, on on when we can see that available to to everyone? I I sure hope soon. (laughs) We we can see the trial. We can see that recruitment's been ongoing. There was some preliminary data that was uh, released back uh, late end of the year. It's not clear that there's benefit. And I think that's the important thing for people that we are somewhat concerned that a lot of people who are kind of worried but otherwise healthy are going to demand this treatment when that research really hasn't been published. But the people who are most likely to end up in hospital care aren't asking, aren't getting tested, aren't aware that they could use this to hopefully keep them out of hospital. So yeah, hopefully soon we'll we'll get that additional research. But the research we have right now is on people who are most likely to end up in hospital. For them, this drug can be really effective at lowering that risk of needing hospital care. Uh, Kelly, thanks so much for giving some insight on on what this means for, uh, you know, the people of Ontario, but also for, uh, you know, the fight against COVID-19. I appreciate you uh, taking the time today. Thanks so much. That was Kelly Grinrod, a professor in the School of Pharmacy at the University of Waterloo, joining us to talk about uh, Paxlovid, about the antiviral COVID-19 drug that was approved by our medical officer of health on Monday, that the eligibility requirements will be broadened and more will be able to use uh, Paxlovid. And Kelly mentioned uh, some of the eligibility requirements that you need to meet before you're able to get this as a treatment. Uh, doesn't doesn't suggest that if you know if you've been vaccinated that this is something uh, that would be effective in in you. If you've been vaccinated with all your boosters, uh, we don't have data, she mentioned either, about the effectiveness on people who are partially vaccinated either. And that study, uh, hopefully, will publish those results uh, soon uh, to get all the information to to everyone about uh, Paxlovid and how it can be used for uh, the fight against COVID-19. So that is an additional way uh, that people uh, can can fight uh, as they get symptoms. Uh, she mentioned that you have to take it on the onset of symptoms uh, within five days. Uh, that way uh, it can start working uh, the way that it needs to to uh, make make sure that you know your symptoms are lessened when it comes to uh, contracting COVID-19. Uh, so Kelly Grin- Grin- Grinrod uh, taking the time to uh, talk to us about uh, what Paxlovid is and how it can help uh, in a different way than the vaccine uh, does currently.
Uh, we've got to head to a break, and we'll come back with more on Kitchener Today on City News 570. But we are using it a lot in people who have a weakened immune system from cancer treatment or they've had an organ transplant. And when the salvageability that just expanded yesterday, you're saying it's really still targeting older people, people not yet vaccinated, people who have multiple health conditions. That's the focus of treatment. So that had limited the uptake of it. And I think people just don't know. So the people who are eligible and at risk and would benefit have no idea this is an option for them. That was Kelly Grinrod, our guest from the School of Pharmacy at the University of Waterloo, talking talking about Paxlovid and its uses and who might be eligible for it, how it's used, why it's being considered as a, a as a secondary option, and uh, our our province on Monday uh, expanded the eligibility around. Uh, who can take uh, Paxlovid. Uh, a lot of questions, I suppose, were, were raised when this was announced about, you know, uh, why Pfizer over Merck. I, I remember Merck, Merck having the antiviral COVID-19 pill as well. Uh, and they signed a deal to make uh, the antiviral drug in Canada. That drug was developed to treat mild to moderate COVID-19 illness in adults who test positive or are at risk of severe disease, including hospitalization uh, and death. Uh, and their Thermo Fisher site in Ontario is one of three in the world for this kind of treatment. Um, there was a review that was done uh, on Merck's pill uh, from the U.S. federal health regulators uh, which had an analysis of Merck's experimental COVID-19 pill in November, saying it is effective against the virus, but that there remain some questions about its safety. Uh, so that might be why uh, Canada and uh, Ontario went with uh, Pfizer. Uh, obviously, Health Canada has to make its approval before uh, uh, it's available in the provinces, but um, that is why Merck's antiviral COVID-19 pill, uh, that's that's the stage it was at, I suppose, when it came to the questions around uh, its safety and, and why maybe we went with Pfizer instead of Merck's. And that is, uh, that, that was uh, reported by U.S. federal health regulators uh, in that analysis. Uh Kelly also mentioned that, uh, you know, it wasn't as accessible when it was first brought into uh, the market. Uh, there were delays uh, on how to, uh, on, on making it. Um, it. It took a long time to make it. Um, but now we have more of a supply than we ever have uh, to be able to open up the eligibility requirements. And that's why... Uh, we have that announcement from Dr. Moore on Monday. So it's not for everyone, but it's for people who might be immunocompromised or have multiple risk factors. And Kelly mentioned some of the eligibility criteria uh, just moments ago. Uh, we're going to head on to the news. And then when we come back, uh, we'll talk about why lowering the voting age in Canada is such a good idea. That's according to one uh, NDP MP in British Columbia. We'll speak with that MP uh, just after the one thirty update. This is City News 570 and Kitchener Today.
Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Thanks so much for taking the time to tune in. Lowering the voting age in Canada. Why that's such a good idea. There's a piece, uh, many pieces, many, many pieces written about this specific idea on why it's a good idea. Uh, Many making the arguments that uh, youth are the most affected by today's pressing issues and they should have a say in the future and how it's shaped, uh, knowing that they're the ones, for the most part, down the road will be the ones having to deal with decisions that are being made uh, for their future. Uh, Joining us on the show today to talk about this idea is Taylor Backrack, an NDP MP from Skeena Bulkley Valley in British Columbia. Taylor, thanks so much for taking the time. Good afternoon, James. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so, MP Backrack, I, I guess when it comes to this idea of lowering the voting age, why why do you believe this is a good idea, and and what kind of uh, sparked you uh, to present the private members' bill when you did uh, about lowering that the voting age in this country? Yeah, great question, and I, I think you covered one of the most important reasons in your intro, which is that when we look at the issues we're discussing in Parliament, when we look at the the issues that Canada is grappling with, a lot of these are issues that have a, a huge bearing on the future of today's young people. And I believe that they deserve a, a seat at the table and a voice in our democracy. Uh, you know, we're talking about things like the climate emergency. We're talking about the, the, the cost of housing. We're talking about student debt. Uh, all of these things are, are issues that young people care about. And uh, I think we're going to be a stronger country. We're going to have a stronger democratic process if we include 16 and 17 year olds in that conversation. When, when it comes to uh, the effort to lower the voting age in this country, it's, it's never an easy thing to do. Uh, I mean, we, we have succeeded in it in the past, uh, but why, why was this something outside of, uh, you know, the youth being the most affected by, you know, future decisions? Why was this something that, that we need to tackle uh, in 2022 when, you know, we haven't seen a voting age being lowered for quite some time? Uh, the last time it was lowered was in 1970. And, and of course, the story of the, the voting franchise in Canada is one of constant expansion. At, at one time, you had to be a, a British subject and a landowner in order to vote. And you had to be a man. Uh, and, and since then, we've expanded it several times uh, for very important reasons, to include Indigenous people, to include women. Uh, and like I said, in 1970, it was lowered um, from from age 21 to age 18. Uh, Now, your question was, why now? And there's a lot of momentum because uh, a number of countries around the world have chosen to lower their voting age to 16. Uh, Countries like Scotland and Wales, Austria, Argentina, uh, the the new government in Germany is on the brink of lowering the voting age. And here in Canada, uh, there's a really important conversation uh, being led by young people. There's a group of young people actually taking the federal government to court um, because they feel the current restriction restriction on voting age is an infringement of their charter rights. So it is an issue that's very timely. And, uh, you know, I think that when uh, a country decides that an idea is a good idea, uh, the best time to implement it is, is right away. 
Uh, for for many, uh, you know, th- th- there could be there could be people who support this. There could be people who who don't want uh, a, a change in in the age. What is when it comes to hearing from your constituents, but not just in your area, but hearing from other uh, uh, parliament members as well, what is the biggest conversation starter, I suppose, when it comes to this subject about lowering the age? Is, do, you, do you know if there's a lot of support when it comes to uh, the chatter that you hear around Parliament Hill, or is that something that uh, that is yet to be kind of uh, you know brought out to other MPs to kind of decide on? One of the reasons I thought this would be an interesting bill to bring forward is because it has received uh, support across political parties and across the political spectrum in the past. So, uh, you know, Mark Holland, the current government uh, House leader, uh, he brought this bill forward in 2004. And uh, Elizabeth May from the Green Party has tabled it. And of course, uh, members of Parliament from the NDP have tabled it several times over the years, including uh, my colleague Don Davies, who's, who's tabled it, I believe, five or six times. So, my hope is that we can we can build on that cross-party support uh, and come together and get a majority of MPs to support it in the House. Now, you mentioned, you know, what's the conversation and are there people who don't think this is a good idea? Uh, of course, like, like any idea. Uh, and I think if we looked back at, at the other changes to voting age, I was reading some of the old debates from 1970 when they changed the voting age from 21 to to 18. And, and the issues brought forward then were very much similar to the issues being brought forward now. It really, it boils down to this question around maturity and the question of whether 16 and 17 year olds are, are mature enough to make a rational decision uh, in the voting booth at, at the ballot box. And, and I really believe they are. Today's young people have access to a vast amount of information through social media. They're, they're engaged in the issues. Uh, they're talking about it at school. And I believe that they have, um, you know, they have the, the ability, the maturity to, to make a good decision. Um, the, the other thing, of course, is that uh, we have a real challenge in our country around voter participation. And the demographic that comes out and, and participates in elections uh, the least and has the lowest participation are those first-time voters between ages 18 and 24. And so perhaps a little bit counterintuitively, the idea here is that if you lower the voting age to 16, that places the first time that many young people will vote uh, within the time that they're in school. And, and the hope is that you can build these lifelong voting habits uh, by having young people vote while they're still in high school um, and couple that with really strong civics education and, and have those social cues that, um, you know, encourage them and and share the message that this is an important responsibility as a citizen of our country. You, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, when, when it comes to 16 to 17 year olds learning about civics and, and everything like that, but also the, the, the lack of participation between 18 and 24 year olds. Why, why would, why would it be deemed, I suppose, that 16 and 17-year-olds would increase that participation if we're already struggling with 18 to 24-year-olds to get involved with voting in elections? It's a very good question. And, and you know, I think when you're 18 and, and young people are leaving, uh, leaving high school, leaving home for the first time, many of them, uh, going to college or university, they're entering the workforce, they, they've got a lot on their plate. And I, I don't think that participating in elections is at the top of many young people's priority list at that age. 
Now, the idea with lowering it to 16 is that when young people are in high school, they're actually learning about a lot of these issues um, in the school environment. I, I, I'm here in Kitimat in British Columbia, and I just got out of a, a, a talk with a, a grade 9 class at Mount Elizabeth uh, Secondary, and they're learning all about, these are our 13- and 14-year-olds, learning all about uh, politics and government and how political parties work, all of those things. Um, so if we're able to have the first time young people vote while they're still in high school, then we can couple it with really strong civics education. We could have polling uh, booths at schools um, and, and we could really drive up the voting rate among those 16 year olds. And then the hope is that they'll carry that experience with them when they leave school, when they leave home and they enter the workforce. And they're going to remember uh, that voting is an important thing to do and it's important uh, to, you know, make it a priority. So that, that's the theory. We have some evidence from countries like Scotland that that, that actually happens, that um, when 16 and 17-year-olds are, are given the right to vote, it does increase voter participation throughout uh, different demographics as, as those young people get older. I was going to ask that because, uh, you know, it, it's, it's easy for us to say that, you know, something could happen uh, with uh, participation in a lower age group. Um, but if there's if there's nothing to back that up with research, then, you know, it, it, it kind of makes people skeptical if this would even work to begin with. And uh, I think I think uh, I don't know if there's enough out there uh, that suggests that that would increase voter participation if we did open it up to uh, ages that are earlier than 18. Uh, is there anything else that you have seen when it comes to that uh, uh, increasing the participation outside of what you mentioned with, with Scotland? Yeah, there, there's also, I believe, a study on, on Austria's experience that also points in that direction as well. Um, but I, I think the most important issue here is this question of whether 16 and 17-year-olds are mature enough to make a rational decision. And, you know, if you look at the Constitution of Canada, you look at the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it says that every Canadian citizen will have the right to vote. It doesn't specify an age. It's only the Canada Elections Act that specifies 18 as the, as the voting age. And so, um, you know, if, if young people, if 16 and 17-year-olds are, are mature enough to, to make a rational decision, then... Um, they need to be afforded that opportunity. It, it's really, it's a constitutional right of theirs. Um, there's also research around cold cognition, which is, you know, I don't want to get too much into the, the psychology of all of this, but um, there is research out there that shows that by age 16, uh, young people are mature enough and, and have the cognitive ability to make a, a rational decision when presented with different options. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's really the bottom line is, is that um, young people are, are given all sorts of responsibilities. You know, at 16 uh, here in British Columbia, you can have a driver's license. You can, um, you know, you can work and pay taxes. I think that's one of the most profound uh, responsibilities. And, and yet these young people are, are taking on all these responsibilities and don't have the ability to vote for the government that creates the laws that governs much of their lives. 
Uh, some might think that, uh, you know, because, you know, uh, 16-year-olds could, uh, you know, get a job and, and have to pay taxes and and lowering that age limit, it, it could be viewed as kind of a whataboutism. So w- when it comes to uh, people who might feel that way uh, about uh, lowering the age limit because uh, there's certain other things in life that we can do at 16, uh, but voting is not one of them, do you view that as, as something? that could be viewed as a whataboutism uh, about, you know, maybe people who don't want to lower it to that age? The, you know, the conversation, when it, when it comes to people who, who don't like this idea, a lot of them base their opposition on a, a pretty dim view of young people in general and their place in society. I, I take a, a, a pretty optimistic view. I think that um, today's young people, today's 16 and 17-year-olds, have a huge amount to offer. To our society, and uh, they have a, a perspective on the issues that is often uh, unique from those of, of older people, and they have they bring a lot of energy and a lot of insight. And um, I can, you know, I only think that it makes our system stronger to bring those those voices into the conversation and to give them a place at the table and and a voice in our democracy. Um, you know, that that's really a, a lot of the uh, people's sort of uh, intuitive reaction is based on the young people that they might know in their life. And I know so many young people that are, uh, that are mature, that are thoughtful and intelligent and compassionate. Um, and, and when I think about the voting process and I think about what would improve our country, uh, I think, I really do think that bringing those people uh, into the conversation is going to make us a stronger, stronger place. Uh, Taylor, thanks so much for uh, taking the time today to uh, speak to me about this and uh, for sharing your thoughts on on why this is a good idea. I appreciate you doing that. Likewise, James. Thanks so much for your interest, and we'll see where it goes. It's going to be up for debate in the House of Commons on May the 4th, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what the other parties have to say. I'll be up giving a speech, and and hopefully when it comes forward for a vote, we can can pass this into law and and change the way that our elections are done. All right, uh, MP Backrack, thanks so much for taking the time. Appreciate you doing that. Have a great day. You Bye-bye. too. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Taylor Backrack, an NDP MP from Skeena, Bulkley Valley in British Columbia, talking about why he thinks lowering the voting age in Canada is a good idea. We have Jason on the phone. Jason, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I found it very interesting because you brought up a good point about how then uh, the young voters would still be in high school and then the teachers could really teach them about voting and about how politics work and all that. Yeah. And I... I mean, uh, so I wonder why the NDP and the Liberals might like something like that, being that the teachers' unions are probably the largest third-party donor to push the, to try to influence the vote to the left. So I I wonder if Jason, to be fair, he did say that there was support from every party on this and not just from the NDP and Liberals, right? So we, ha- we have to be fair to those comments, too, about, uh, you know, there are some conservative MPs that agree with this. Uh, it's not just the Liberals or NDPs. And I get what you're saying, you know, that, the, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from on that. But he did mention that it, it's across party lines that there, there's been support on this. I don't get why there would be because, yeah, like the... There's no doubting it. Uh, the teachers' union is the largest supporter of uh, left-wing propaganda in the election cycles. So uh, I would have a serious problem with kids in school being taught by uh, uh, one-sided uh, thing on who to vote for. It would basically just be election meddling. Thank you. 
Thanks, Jason. Appreciate the thoughts. And, you know, it, you have a responsibility as a parent, too, to teach your kids about this, right? Like, it's not just up to our education system to uh, talk about what elections are all about. My parents taught me about what elections are all about outside of what I've learned in school. Did it shape how I voted? I, you know, just because what a teacher said and, and maybe they have a connection to union, it, it didn't. It didn't. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are more people that think like that, just like what, what Jason mentioned. Uh, we have Rush on the phone. Rush, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. I don't doubt that young people are smart enough, cognitively uh, capable enough to vote. My problem with, with lowering the voting age is that young people tend to have a high time preference, meaning that they value immediacy far more than, than older people do. And that, you know, you, you can see that in, in dietary choices, right? Like junk food is quite popular, binge drinking, that sort of stuff, because it's like right now, I'm going to feel good. I don't worry about the about the ramifications that are going to happen down the road. I'm only concerned with, you know, the, the short term. Right. If you apply that kind of thinking to voting, man, I just think we're setting ourselves up for a, for a lot of trouble. Um, as your guest said, young people are very compassionate, very empathetic, all that sort of stuff. Um, they, I, I could see them just just voting very predominantly for handing out money. And we've had that problem for, for um, a decade already. I, I just don't want to see that get any worse. Thanks. Yeah, Rush, thank, thanks for uh, the comment on that. And and again, you know, it, it, it it's not just something that, that educators can educate our kids on, right? Like we can take this responsibility uh, ourselves as parents to say, you know what, kids, like this is how elections work in Canada. This is what we can do to shape the future and that it's not just about the short-term effects of an election uh, from from one four-year segment to another four-year segment, that there could be effects 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road, right? These are all things that aren't just in the hands of educators to be able to share that information with our young people, right? I have to head to a break. We'll come back with more calls right after this. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. Talking about lowering the voting age in our country to 16. There is an MP from British Columbia, an NDP MP, who tabled a private member's bill suggesting that we need to do this, uh, get our kids that are 16 and 17 years old more engaged with the political system, and that as they learn about it in school uh, and in life, not just at school, but in life, about how our political system works, that it might drive their engagement politically. Uh, We have Joe on the line. Joe, good afternoon. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you, Joe? Good, thanks for asking. You know, I agree with Rush um, 100%. And and just adding to that, you know, I um, I believe that there is a heck of a difference in the maturity level between most 16-year-olds and 18-year-olds. 
Um, and, and I sincerely believe they should just leave it at 18 because where's it going to end? Uh, let's say if they get 16 in and then it'll be 15. I mean, there's no end to it sometimes, you know. 18, I think, is a perfect age where these um, mature young adults can make the decisions um, that should be made, you know. Um, 16 is just too young. Well, I, yeah, Joe, you, you mentioned about... Uh, where does it end? Uh, it would just, the argument that's being made is that it would just align with other age minimums. So, um, you know, 16 being, uh, you know, where some of the other age minimums are at, that's that's kind of what the argument is. Uh, I don't know if it would uh, go into uh, lowering it to 15, 14. I don't know if that would ever be the case, but I think that's that's kind of the, the argument with that, is that it would just align better with other age minimums and what we allow our, our teenagers to do, right? So, Yeah, true, true. I agree with you. But, you know, still, though, uh, 16 is just uh, too young. I, I think a lot of us older people, uh, we know a lot of kids that are in that age bracket, and we know a lot of kids in the 18 to 20 age age bracket. And like I said, it's a heck of a difference. And, and I sincerely believe they should just leave it at that, to be honest with you. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate the call. Um, you know, the, Joe mentioned that there is a, there, there's a difference of maturity in 16 to 18-year-olds. Yeah, like there is. And our guest mentioned that at 18 years old, voting might not be uh, at the top of the list of things to do as an 18-year-old. When I turned 18 to vote, I voted. I've voted in every election since I turned 18. Uh, so it was absolutely at the top of my list. But it was because of my parents telling me how important it was, but also my educators telling me how important it was to vote, and and not for any other reason other than that. So that's that's kind of I've voted in every election since I was 18. Tony, good afternoon. We'll have the last say on on this. Yeah, uh, to be honest with you. <laughs> Uh, I don't agree that uh, it should be lowered. I mean, these MPs, it's funny how they uh, they want to lower it to 16, but if they're going to do that, then they got to do it across the board. That means they got to do the Young Offenders Act and change it to 16 years old and try them as adults if they do serious crimes because they keep on telling us we don't get to know their names, they don't get tried as an adult because they're still considered young people at 16. I mean, if you're going to lower it to, to 16, then they should be able to go in the Army at 16. If you're, going to, if you're old enough to pick up a weapon to defend this country, then you're old enough to vote. You should not, in my opinion, allow a 16-year-old to make a decision that, especially in today's youth, they get swayed pretty easily just through social media and other things. They can be easily swayed in the classroom as well. That's just my opinion. Thanks, Tony. Uh, you know, you can make the argument that a 25-year-old could be easily swayed or a 35-year-old could be easily swayed on social media as well. Uh, I get that we're not all in the classroom, uh, but, you know, we, we have to, we, I think we have to pull away a little bit that uh, the attachment to the unions from, from the teachers' perspectives and, and just as adults and as parents that we need to teach our kids about how elections work. We have to take some responsibility on that too, not just leave it in the hands of educators. This is uh, Kitchener Today on City News 570. We'll be back with more. Philly's going to have a battle with Toronto in that first. I oh, agree man. with you. No way. Yes. Have you have you seen the Raptors? Have you Toronto's seen? Toronto's getting swept. Right it down. Oh, 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 oh. Toronto getting swept. That was Shaquille O'Neal doubting the Toronto Raptors 
in their first round matchup with the Philadelphia 76ers. Shaq has walked back those comments a little bit when it comes to them getting swept. Let's just remember this isn't a, you know, 1-8 matchup or a 2-7 matchup or anything like that. This is a 4-5 matchup in that conference and joining us to talk about the Raptors is Michael Grange from Sportsnet. Michael, uh, thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, my pleasure. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Good. Uh, so, Michael, when, when it comes to those comments uh, that, that Shaq did make the other night about, uh, you know, the 76ers and the Raptors, what were your kind of first thoughts uh, about the doubt, I suppose, that Shaq put out uh, on the Raptors? Well, I mean, it's TV, right? So, you know, there's usually not a lot of uh, TV's not very interesting if guys just say, you know, or if they, if they, you know, if people just stick to the most kind of realistic versions of what could happen, it usually makes pretty boring TV. So, you know, he's paid to not be boring. And, uh, you know, so you throw it out there, it's a sweep. I guess it gets people talking. And, um, it, but I don't think anyone who's paid any attention to these two teams. Uh, would would sign off on that? Like I just, uh, you know, I think it just maybe it, it, put it this way. I think I think Shaq has a chance, a very 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 good chance of looking pretty pretty silly on this one. Obviously, with how TNT do their broadcasts with uh, you know uh, Charles Barkley and 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 Shaq on on that panel uh, and and Kenny Williams even uh, a lot of the times that uh, you know it's very uh, opinionated and very different of what we normally see in sports coverage. Uh, so you know when it comes to the boldness of, of TNT and, and and some of the stuff that they do, uh, is this something that we shouldn't be so surprised about when it comes to some of the analysts that they have on that panel? Oh yeah, I mean, I think that's that's sort of the 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 whole premise of the of the way it's set up is is like I said. I mean, I think if they all just got on there and agreed with everything the other person said, it wouldn't be nearly as entertaining. So, I think uh, you know you got Shaq coming out and saying one thing and kind of taking one in, one in position, and then you know Charles Buckley can kind of take the other position, and then you know the host the host uh, Ernie he just sort of tries to you know, tries to uh, kind of police the action and, um, you know, it makes for good TV. And uh, But I don't think anyone's ever accused Shaq or Charles Barkley of doing an incredible amount of research into <laughs> some of their basketball <laughs> opinions. So I think uh, I think you take it for what it's worth. Uh, so, Michael, heading into this series with, with the Raptors uh, and, and 76ers, uh, you know, these are two teams that have played each other pretty closely for the, the entire season. Uh, what are your expectations uh, from this Raptors team in this first-round matchup here, and, and, and how do you think that they match up against the 76ers? I think, they, uh, I think it's a good matchup for Toronto. I'm sorry, I just got a little tickle in my throat here. But... Um, yeah, I think uh, you know. I think the, the couple of things that are is in the Raptors' favor is um, you know with Nick Nurse coaching, uh, they've had a really good game plan for Joel Embiid going right back to the 2019 or 2018-19 playoffs. Um, if you look at the the playoffs, you look at the regular season games since then, and this is kind of irrespective of personnel, like even. You know, obviously it helped, helped having Serge Ibaka and Marcus All uh, to guard Embiid, but they've been able to really kind of slow him down even without, um, you know, without those kind of marquee defenders. So uh, they have a decent game plan for Embiid, and I think in terms of the Raptors' overall personnel, 
they have a lot of, you know, as we know, six, eight, six, nine players who are really mobile who can kind of um, help contain any kind of two-man action that the Sixers use with Joel Embiid and, and James Harden. So they can switch them, they can stay at home on them, and, uh, you know, they have enough different bodies that they can throw into that and and hopefully you know you're not going to stop those guys but you're just really trying to neutralize them to the point that they're not the reason you're losing and i think if they can do that i think uh, elsewhere the Sixers is a little bit vulnerable in terms of you know how they can be attacked and um you know i think joel and is the best player in this series but i think the raptors might have the best two or three best players and i think it bodes well for them Obviously, uh, there there are there's history with these two teams meeting up in the playoffs with the uh, you know not just in uh, the the championship run that we saw in 2019, but also uh, in previous uh, seasons as well. Um, when you compare the the two teams uh, most recently in the 2019 run to now, uh, you know the 76ers not having Ben Simmons but having James Harden now instead, uh, versus the emergence of Scotty Barnes and you know Pascal Siakam getting back to where you know, Toronto sports fans knows where he can play and at the level that he can play at, uh, and, and not having Kyle Lowry as a, as a big factor on, on a, on a Raptors team and, and Van Vliet being that factor. Uh, you know, what are the biggest differences I suppose, uh, outside of not having Kawhi Leonard, of course, with the Raptors? Yeah. I mean, I think you touched, you touched on a lot of it there. Um, you know, when, when these two teams met a couple of years ago or three years ago, um, you know, all the pressure was on the Raptors. They they only really knew they were going to have Kawhi Leonard for one year. Um, they knew they had a chance to, you know, if they could get Beth Philly, who was, by the way, a very good team because you're, you're leaving out Jimmy Butler at that point. Um, you know, they there's every reason to believe that the Sixers could have won that year if they had if they if they had been able to get by Toronto. Um, I think. You know, but there wasn't quite as much expectation on that Sixers team. I mean, I think they were they were built to win, and they could have won, and they probably maybe even should have won. But you know, the the expectations with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons at that stage in their careers, they would have multiple opportunities. Um, now it's kind of reversed a little bit. I mean, the Sixers have uh, you know kind of gone all in on James Harden. They made the trade with Ben Simmons. Uh, during the season around the trade deadline. And, and this is their t- team. They've used all their future assets. They've done everything, you know, they can to build a team or a lineup around Joel Embiid that they think can, they can win with. And, you know, if it doesn't work, it's a, there's a ton of pressure on, on Joel Embiid. There's a ton of pressure on James Harden. And, uh, you know, their team president, Daryl Moore, he's going to, have to answer for it too and their head coach doc rivers will also be under a ton of pressure he's had some you know kind of rough playoff runs the last few years so um whereas the raptors is completely gravy um you know i think they were picked for 35 or 36 wins preseason uh, out of vegas and they're blew past that they they're a really young team they um you know they they really are just a year removed from the draft lottery and when they got scotty barnes so it's not like they're in a rush uh, to uh, you know, the, this is still a team that's on the on, that's growing, that's on kind of on the ascent. So um, you know, I don't think that gives them any excuses. Where they if they lose, it's all fine. I just think that you know they can kind of go into this without any expectations and hope for the best. Whereas I think Philly, you know, if they end up in a rough spot or down a game or two in a series, like they're you know the pressure is really going to be a factor there. 
Uh, with this Raptors team, uh, you know, they were on fire to, to really close out the season. I, I think, you know, the stat was like they won 17 or 18 of the last 22 games or something like that and and really made that push to, to make the playoffs and, and get this matchup with uh, the Sixers and avoiding the Celtics in the first round. Uh, first round. So is, is this kind of a, a more favorable matchup for the Raptors if you look at it that way compared to how well the Celtics were playing towards the end of the season as well? Yeah, I think it is. I think it would be a preferred matchup. I, I don't think, you know, the Raptors are kind of scared of anyone, but, the, you know, the Celtics are, you know, a really, really, really good team. And I think a legitimate uh, favorite to come out of the East. And, um, you know, I think they're very similar teams. Maybe just, the, you know, I think the Celtics have a little bit more depth and a little bit more talent. Of course, they had the injury with Robert Williams, which uh, has kind of set them off a little bit. But um, I think... You know, Philly is, they're just so top-heavy. They have so much invested in, in Embiid and Harden. And, you know, they had to give up some of their depths to make that trade. And I think the minutes when Joel Embiid's not on the floor, I think, are going to be critical. I think it gives an opportunity for the Raptors to kind of dominate those minutes. And I think if they can um, attack gaps in, their, in the Sixers lineup, um around Embiid, I think that they have a chance to win. So I think it is a reasonably fair, you know, a reasonably uh, favorable matchup for Toronto. Like I would pick them to win in six games. There's the other factor we haven't talked about is uh, Matisse Teibel, who's probably the Sixers' best defender, and he's uh, not vaccinated, or at least he hasn't had his full range of vaccinations. And so he's not eligible to play in Canada for games three and four. Um, and, you know, that could be a really big factor. The Sixers aren't a really deep team, and he's a really good player. And, uh, you know, they're going to be without him for two potentially critical moves. I think that helps Toronto, too. Uh, for a Raptors team who has been doubted in the past, uh, you know, they were doubted their entire 2019 run, uh, and ended up winning the championship, uh, and, and, and a lot of, a lot of, you know, had to happen in order for them to do that. Uh, but, but what do you, what do you think for them, uh, hearing some comments like, like we've heard from Shaq and, and some other pundits out there that, that might be doubting this Raptors team, uh, knowing that, you know, they do play with a chip on their shoulder and, and they, they, do uh, you know not read too much into it, but they, they know what's being said about them. Is is there something out there that that makes them believe that you know if we just take this one game at a time that this is doable for us, despite of what's being said about us? Oh, I think they do take a lot of that kind of noise, and and uh, you know I'm sure their comment would be they're used to it, right? Like I mean I think that they've um, it's just a, a function of being I think the NBA's lone Canadian team or lone, you know, I, I think the NBA is such a star-driven league and it really does kind of cater to its bigger markets that, um, you know, a lot of teams in the league would feel the same way. But for sure, the, I think the Raptors do get overlooked a little bit on just in terms of not not people who really study the league, but, people, you know, kind of more on the opinion maker and noisemaker side. Um, they're just, you know, they just don't resonate the same way. So um, I think that it does provide the Raptors um, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, a chip on their shoulder, so to speak. And I think it serves them well. And I think the other thing that really serves them well is they're just, uh, you know, they're a really tough-minded team. They have players who've won the title and guys like Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam. And 
OG and Anobi, who, you know, they, they have performed in the playoffs before. Um, so they don't look at themselves as kind of an upstart team. And I think the other factor that really works in their favor is, is Nick Nurse and his staff. I think they're probably as well coached as any team in the NBA, probably better than almost all. And, um, you know, and I think that helps too. They really go into games believing that they have the best kind of game plans available and uh, they buy in and, and uh, you know, that's, that's almost half the battle most of the time. I know the regular season uh, uh, really kind of stops when the regular season ends, but, you know, the Raptors did have some success against the 76ers so, uh, in the regular season. So do you, do you think that that's, uh, you know, something that to be read into, or, you know, do you just hit the reset button going into the playoffs, knowing that each game uh, can be played differently uh, in, the, in the postseason as it, uh, versus the regular season? Yeah, I wouldn't. You wouldn't want to weigh too heavily onto regular season <clears throat> results, like they are. You know, there's just the circumstances of every game is so different. People, different people playing, different. You know, some teams being rested versus not rested, healthy versus not healthy. But you know, the, the, these two teams have played twice since the James Harden trade, and the Raptors won both those games. And you know, as has been more or less the case, Joel Embiid has been kind of kept below his what he's, his season average is. He just hasn't shown that he's been able to dominate the Raptors. So I think that just kind of is maybe an indicator. It's not, uh, you know, it doesn't guarantee anything, but it's an indicator that I think, um, you know, this is a, the Raptors feel like they do have a decent game plan for Embiid, and I think that they have a reasonable matchup in terms of personnel for, you know, beyond that matchup. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for uh, taking the time today to uh, chat about the Raptors and their upcoming playoff series with the 76ers. Appreciate you doing that. Great. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Uh, That was Michael Grange from Sportsnet uh, chatting with us about some of that noise that Shaq created around the Raptors and uh, this playoff series upcoming with uh, the 76ers. I, I think... You know, Michael said it well. They do, you know, line up fairly well in in comparison to the 76ers on their abilities around the ball, uh, how they shoot the ball, uh, how, you know, they, they, they're not just a team that, that drives. They're also a team that can shoot the three. Uh, and they're they're very, very good defensive-minded team as well. And, uh, you know, with, with the way that Nick Nurse prepares his team for games around a superstar like Joel Embiid. I think the 76ers are going to have to rely on Harden to be more of a, a star in, in his games uh, than, than he has been in the past. Uh, a lot There's been a lot of questions around uh, James Harden's ability to take over games, uh, his, his, his want to take over games at times. Uh, you, can, you can see it too. Uh, sometimes, um, but when he's on, he's on, and and I think that's you know a question for the Seventy Sixers is which James Harden are you going to get? Because we know that Joel Embiid is good, probably for twenty to twenty five points in this series almost each and every night, and it's how how do you defend against that when James Harden is also going at the same time, and th- there is. There are other players on the court too, don't get me wrong, from the 76ers, but those are the two that you're probably most worried about in this series upcoming with the Raptors. Of course, 
uh, playing games begin tonight uh, for the NBA uh, final playoff spot. Uh, Brooklyn play the Cleveland Cleveland Cavaliers, but it, it it it's supposed to be played in Brooklyn. But I don't know if the NBA is going to cancel that game given what what has happened in in Brooklyn today. I haven't seen anything in that sense that uh, that it's going to get canceled. There's a lot of people that think it should get canceled, uh, but we'll see what the NBA decides on that front. And you know, these Michael said it best. The, the, these NBA playoffs uh, normally get a lot of attention in those bigger markets and smaller markets like Toronto. Kind of get doubted and left out. And uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying Toronto's a team that could go and win the East this year, but they've shown that they can be competitive against those teams that they have to get through to to get that done. And I think, you know, Michael's right. I think playing the 76ers plays a little bit better into their hands than playing the Celtics. Because we, the Celtics have dominated teams. Uh, and And the last time the Raptors had to play the Celtics in the playoffs. The Celtics took that those games over too. And Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, all those guys, they they play very well uh, when it comes to driving and, and, and shooting the three. Uh, and when you have two guys that can do that and, and take over games in an instant, uh, I think that presents a challenge. So it, it all I think it all depends on, you know, what you're going to get from James Harden. Because we know Joel, Joel Embiid has the ability to take over any game. That's why he's, uh, you know, one of the top tier players in, in the NBA. Uh, but we have to head to the break. We'll come back with more on City News 570. You know, if people just stick to the most kind of realistic versions of what could happen, it usually makes pretty boring TV. So he's paid to not be boring. And so you throw it out there. It's a sweep. I guess it gets people talking. But I don't think anyone who's paid any attention to these two teams would sign off on that like i just you know i think it's just maybe put it this way i think i think shaq has a chance a very 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 good chance of looking pretty pretty silly on this one that was michael grange from sportsnet joining us this afternoon to talk about the upcoming series between the 76ers and the toronto raptors he thinks and this is a guy that follows his team every day uh he thinks that they match up well with the 76ers probably matches up better than any other team that they would be close to having to face uh, in that Eastern Conference there. Uh, I don't think you want to face the Bucks in the first round. I don't think you want to face the Celtics in the first round. Uh, so, you know, take your chances, I suppose, with the 76ers. And that's what will happen this weekend with the Raptors playing their first game against those Philadelphia 76ers who we all know uh, have... Both teams have history playing each other in the postseason. Uh, we have to go to the news. We're going to head back right after this uh, with the tech spotlight and then uh, with more after this on Kitchener Today on City News 570.
Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Thanks so much for taking the time to tune in. This is the Tuesday Tech Spotlight where we feature what's happening in the world of tech in our community. And today's guest is Doug Zurig, the Director of Marketing at Peer Group. Good afternoon, Doug. Good afternoon, James. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing very well. Good. Uh, Doug, let's uh, start with uh, what Peer the peer group does uh and 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 how you know they or what they do daily i suppose when it comes to uh uh everyday life at at the peer group i don't know no no two days are the same but we uh we are the leading supplier of factory automation software for semiconductor equipment makers and factories now that's a mouthful but what that means is the the big giant factories the most complicated factories on earth that make computer chips our software runs the, the tools on the floor, the equipment on the floor, uh, all the way up to the, the factory itself. So we provide all the software automation uh, that helps to make the chips that go inside your phone. So uh, w- when it comes to uh, the work that's done, how, how important is it to have uh, you know, someone like uh, Peer Group in our region, uh, knowing that uh, you know, after you just outlined what, what, what happens there every single day? How important is that for our region here? Uh, it's it's big for the region. So we're we're an interesting company in that we're oh about ninety nine point nine percent exports only. Uh, we do have a small number of Canadian customers over our, our thirty years in business, but the vast majority, again ninety nine percent plus, uh, is all export. Our customers are in the states, in Europe, a bunch in Asia, uh, and you know this is the kind of thing that we want to do to grow the region and grow the country is to export the the great knowledge and technology, and we're right at the forefront of that. Uh, with, with you mentioning uh, being at the forefront of that, uh, you know, Peer Group just earned another uh, I- uh, Intel 2022 Epic Outstanding Supplier Award, uh, and I understand that's the seventh straight you know, year that, that this award has been uh, awarded to Peer Group. So uh, when it comes to being recognized for uh, you know, being an outstanding supplier, um, you know how 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 important is it to have that recognition for not just your customers but but on the world stage as well yeah that's a really special one for us that just came through last week and and you're right so for the six previous years uh we we were uh, lucky enough and hard working enough to get the the preferred quality supplier award from Intel which is incredibly hard to get uh, but just last week, Peer Group was uh, named as the Epic Outstanding Award winner. Uh, and of the thousands of suppliers that Intel has, only six of them uh, got the award this year. It is incredibly hard. Um, in, in their words, in their press release, it shows that we're amongst the best of the best. Uh, and that's a big deal. I mean, that shows that we're capable in, in Kitchener-Waterloo of doing outstanding, world-beating, best-of-the-best work. Uh, it's great for the region. It shows off what's possible. And, you know, as the, the marketing guy here at Peer Group, boy, oh, boy, that opens a lot of doors for us when we talk to other customers in the industry to say that uh, Intel thinks that we are epic, outstanding. Uh, it just makes it a lot easier to start those conversations and ask people what we can do to help them. When when it comes to uh, when it when it comes to having that that recognition that you say opens doors for you, um, you know, is is it as as simple as uh, being able to just say that and 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 people uh, speak with you about about becoming a customer, or uh, you know, is is there more to the conversations than just you know this is our recognition that we have received for you know the seventh straight year? Uh, 
Oh, I wish it was that simple. <laughs> <laughs> that would be wonderful. Our industry, I mean, because it's so complicated, it, it really is based on relationships and trust and long-term performance. Uh, our sales cycles, you know, a, a short, quick sale for us could be a, a six-month sales cycle. Um, often they're years. Uh, we've had sales that have taken five years to close. It, it's about establishing a long-run trusting proof that day in, day out, we can get the job done. Uh, so an award like this from Intel, that proves that for at least one customer, um, for, for one given year of the award, they trusted us for that. Uh, and then we have to prove ourselves all over again the next year. Uh, so something like this, it, it, I mean, it, oof, it, is a, it is a great arrow to have in our, our backpack and our quiver. Uh, but no, we have to execute on all fronts all the time. Um, our reputation comes from the hard work and the success of our, our people and our software in the field. And it has to be oh, just about perfect every single time. What what's some of the criteria around uh, being awarded something like this? Uh, it, it does sound like it's it's something that's incredibly hard to achieve, uh, and and you know, uh, peer group continues to to achieve it. So I guess what's the the secret sauce uh, on, on why peer group is always recognized on on something like this? Uh, the the secret sauce is great people. <laughs> um, we're uh, you know. It, it, I don't know, maybe it seems a trite to say that, but we've got fantastic employees here who are working really hard. They understand the industry. Um, they're willing to do what it takes and to, to satisfy our customers' needs. Uh, in terms of proving that, though, I mean, it's easy to say that. Uh, the process to get these awards, the process to be a supplier to, to these giant semiconductor companies at all, uh, they'll audit us on a regular basis. We've got a report card um, that comes down. Well, they will check on oh, the quality of our work, how we execute, are we meeting deadlines uh, more and more? Are we meeting environmental targets, inclusion targets, uh, diversity, uh, every single aspect of the business? Um, interestingly, one of the things that came out of uh, you know one of these uh, suppliers who came in and audited us years ago is that, oh, you got to have a disaster recovery plan. And we sort of did it because we had to. It was part of the, the scorecard. So it's like, all right, fine, we'll have a disaster recovery plan. And then golly, if that didn't come in really handy in uh, March 2020, and we, we used that plan for our COVID recovery. Uh, so it's about executing on every single possible part of the business, um, being, I think, the, the outstanding one. They say you got to be 95% plus on the report card just to get considered, uh, and then you got to be fantastic after that. So it's, it, like I say, out of, out of their thousands of suppliers, um, only six got it. And I will say, of those six, uh, the other five are a lot bigger than we are. Um, we're, we're, we're growing fast, but we're only about 240 people here. So we got to work that much harder. Uh, you mentioned the, the growth piece of that too, and being, you know, a kind of a, a small fish in the pond there, uh, with the other companies that have been recognized on this stage. But, uh, I understand that peer, uh, peer does have some, uh, you know, news about their growth and, 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 uh, how it, it's going to plan that. So I guess what's, what's coming up for, for peer group, uh, to, to execute some of that growth, uh, you know, with having these awards along the way. Yeah, exciting news. So it's a, well, it's a 99% public. That's going to be my, my catchphrase today. Uh, we're opening up a Toronto office to uh, help bring more staff on board. So already uh, we've got our Kitchener-Waterloo headquarters here. We've been here for most of our 30-year existence. And it's got about 190 people here. We've got another close to 50, 45-some-odd people in our German office. And we're opening up a Toronto office as well just to, to handle the growth and the expansion and get the people that we need to, to serve our markets. 
how how important is that to have more uh, hands kind of in the cookie jar there to be able to uh, you know keep performing at the level that you're at right now? It's super important. Uh, like I said at the beginning, everything we do comes down to our people. I mean, our, we've got we've got top notch software and proud of our software, but it it all comes down to the people, and it comes down to having long run. Um, you know, it's it's difficult in our industry to understand it after just a short period of time. It's the kind of thing where you you got to come in good, and then you get better as you learn more about the industry and the needs of our customers, and get really in depth and understand their challenges, what it takes to produce these microchips. Uh, so we need to bring people on board. We need to have them on board for a long time, uh, and we need them to, to work well together. Uh, that's part of why, you know, as we're going forward and as we're uh, hopefully, knock on wood, coming out of COVID, um, we're very big on our, our hybrid uh, work model where we're trying to get people to, yes, work from home. It's great. You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, nice attributes for that. But we also want them to come together and to collaborate and work in the office. So to moving towards a hybrid model, uh, both in the Kitchener and the Toronto offices, we think is going to give us the best of both worlds approach there. Uh, and obviously, uh, you know, with with remote work and 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 hybrid work and and stuff like that, is is that is that something that Peer Group really had to, uh, um, among other companies, uh, had to really adjust to uh, in order to be able to uh, continue achieving uh, something like this uh, award that that you've been able to achieve, or uh, has it has it been kind of a seamless transition with with the people that you have? <laughs> Oh, it wasn't seamless. There were some hiccups, but uh, the team really pulled together. So like most people, uh, we were basically work from home for uh, the two years or so. Uh, you know, we had some people coming to the office, a skeleton crew, and we, we did a couple of attempts at, at various hybrids in the middle, but COVID uh, swung its fist at us. Uh, one of our big challenges was a lot of our people um, on a very regular basis are on the road. So we're going to see our customers again, you know, in California, Europe, France, Germany, a whole bunch to Asia. Um, either at the engineering office where they're building these tools or right in the factories and, you know, getting things up and running. Uh, so our customers, they would love to see our people in person, um, in there fixing these things up and getting things going. Uh, but we haven't been able to do that. So our, our travel has been very limited uh, the last couple of years. So, you know, bad enough that we've got to work from home for the office work. But doing these remote integrations uh, remotely uh, instead of being there in person has been quite challenging. So we've, we've had to get creative. Our, our staff has had to put... Uh, do a lot of late night phone calls and do uh, funky creative things over Zoom and try and find ways to figure out what's going on inside the factory when you're not allowed to bring a camera or an internet connection inside the factory. Uh, but they've they pulled it together and got it done. Uh, we're looking forward to being able to do it in person. Uh, these remote integrations, yeah, we found a way, but it's not quite as good. Uh, so fingers crossed things are starting to open up a little bit now. Uh, do you foresee that those remote integrations will be, you know, at least some part of the business moving forward, uh, you know, outside of COVID or, you know, do you, do you fully anticipate to, to be able to help customers, uh, at their facilities, uh, moving forward, uh, once, uh, that's, you know, allowable for, for everyone to get back to, to traveling and, and things like that? No, it's a great observation. I think we've discovered that there's actually there's a lot of situations where this this remote integration, where we're you know doing it uh, from a, a different location, actually works okay. In some cases, it works better. I mean, it saves us a lot of travel time and headache and other such things. Keeps our people uh, at home a little bit more when they can. Uh, but certainly, there's no substitute for being there in person. So we'll see a blend. Um, if I if I was a betting man, I'd say it probably gets to be like a. 70% in person, 30% back here split, but it, it's going to depend on the customer and the circumstance. Uh, it'll be a bit of both. We're still figuring that out to a certain extent. Our customers are figuring that out. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. But 
uh, nothing will be quite the same as it was in 2019 again. What has been the biggest challenge with those remote integrations, I suppose, when it, when it comes to trying to isolate a problem and, and fixing it uh, versus and not being there uh, versus being there and, and, and the, the process, I suppose? Is there any differences between the, how you get from uh, you know, a problem to fixing it uh, or you know, what, what have you been hearing from the staff? Oh, it's uh, <laughs> again, we, we, we've done our darndest, but it's, it can be very difficult. So our the semiconductor industry is famously uh, very paranoid. Uh, Andy Grove, uh, the founder of Intel, he wrote a whole book about only the paranoid survive. Uh, most of our customers will not allow the Internet, any telephones, any video, any microphones uh, into the factories themselves. Uh, some of them won't allow you to carry a piece of paper out. So if you bring a piece of paper into the factory and write down some notes, well, a piece of paper is going to live there forever or get destroyed. So when we've had cases where we've had a piece of equipment that needs support in Korea, um, South Korea, there's a lot of manufacturing there, uh, we'll have our staff on the phone talking to someone outside the factory, ask them the questions. They have to hang up, run inside the factory, figure things out, memorize what's going on, come back out, describe it to us over the phone. Uh, Often someone where English is not their first language, you know, it can be two in the morning here or two in the morning there. Uh, So time zones, language barriers, not being able to transfer information, not being able to see what's going on. Uh, Man, I've got all the respect in the world for our support staff who uh, goes through all that and still finds a way to solve the problem. Uh, But it's, it's not easy. Uh, Doug, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to share a little bit about what Peer Group does and, uh, you know, some of the, the growth plans and, and this award that uh, you've been able to achieve uh, and, the, and the staff have been able to achieve. appreciate you uh, taking the time today. Well, I just want to say uh, Peer Group has been named for 10 years in a row, a great place to work. If any of this sounded like fun, we got a whole bunch of positions open in our Kitchener, Toronto and German offices. So uh, check out our website at peergroup.com and come on board. Awesome, Doug. Thanks so much for taking the time. Appreciate you doing that. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. Take care. That is Doug Zurig, the Director of Marketing at Peer Group, mentions some of the achievements that Peer Group has been able to to accomplish and achieve and uh, their growth plans and just a little bit about what they do uh, and some of the challenges they face through the pandemic on how they can support their customers uh, with with issues. Uh, I can only imagine how difficult it might be for uh, support staff to not be able to see what a problem is and have to figure it out via a computer or, or not having very much information that, uh, that Doug said that they're not allowed to, uh, given the type of work that they do. Uh, so that was Doug Zurig, the Director of Marketing at Peer Group. Uh, opening a Toronto office as well. Uh, so he says that those expansion plans are well underway to help with the growth of the company. So uh, that's the Tuesday Tech Spotlight for today. Uh, we'll head to a break and then we'll come back with more on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in. One thing to keep an eye on for our community here 
Uh, Kitchener and London submitting a joint bid for the 2023 World Juniors. Uh, that's something that uh, after the 2023 World Junior Hockey Championships was supposed to be played in Russia, uh, the IIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation, uh, pulled that away from Russia due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And now they need a new host city. And uh, they are taking, Hockey Canada is taking applications right now. Canada has been tapped on the shoulder as the country to host. Uh, they just need communities to submit bids. Uh, never thought, never thought that Kitchener and London would team up with anything, given the uh, uh, rivalry between uh, the London Knights and the Kitchener Rangers. But for the betterment of junior hockey, they've decided to put in a joint bid that would see half the games during the tournament. Uh, being held at the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium, and the other half being played at Budweiser Gardens. Obviously, there are many other communities that have also put in bids, uh, but this would help uh, you know, draw some spotlight on the region of Waterloo, and not just the city of Kitchener, the region of Waterloo. The whole region would benefit from having an event like this in our area, because it wouldn't just be the city of Kitchener getting a boost from a tournament like this being held here. It'd be all the cities in our community, in our region. Uh, There's many hotels in Cambridge. There's many hotels in Kitchener. There's many hotels in Waterloo. And if there's anything that I know about junior hockey fans is that they like to travel well for this tournament. And, we would see an injection in tourism in our area when it comes to uh, this tournament being held here, or at least part of it. So that's something that uh, to keep an eye on, because uh, I think Hockey Canada is going to be making a decision on this fairly soon. Uh, and it would be great. It would be great to have this after just having the top prospects game at the auditorium not too long ago, where many, 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 many people came to see the top prospects for this upcoming NHL draft, uh, get a chance to see some of those players that you might not get to see normally if you don't host an event such as that one. This would be the same scenario. Uh, The top prospects game and the World Junior Championships are typically typically events that scouts uh, have a lot of draw a lot of attention to in the sense of it's best on best and you see the top top players in each event uh, playing against one another uh, obviously a tournament like the world juniors is uh, you know held over a period of time versus one game as a, at the top prospects game, but there's a lot of weight that gets uh, that gets put into uh, how some of these scouts view some of these players ahead of a draft like that. So I think this would be a great, great thing for our region, and I hope we get it. I hope we... Is it bad to say that I hope we actually get to team up with London and be able to do something like this? Because, uh, you know, I would help out London too. But, you know, if it were up to me, and it's not, but if it were up to me, I'd play the gold medal game at the auditorium. That's it. London can have the bronze medal game. 
Okay. You get enough things that are nice over there in London with that hockey team that doesn't get mentioned a lot on this radio station. Unless, of course, we're broadcasting a game against them, which, by the way, the Kitchener Rangers will be playing the London Knights in the first round of the playoffs. We found that out last night when the Rangers beat the Erie Otters in a weird, weird weekday game in Erie. Started at 5.30. Well, the pregame started at 5.30 and the actual game started at 6. But you don't often see the Rangers having to play a game in Erie on a Monday night. But such is life. And they clinched a playoff spot last night with their win against the Erie Otters. And of course, they have to play the London Knights now. Which, by the way, the Rangers have played the London Knights fairly hard this season. It hasn't been an easy matchup for London at all. Uh, especially the last few games that they've had to play against that team. So we'll see. We'll see what the result is of this World Junior Championship bid. I hope that's something that this community can can get uh, because it, it would obviously help with uh, our economy and I think it would help drawing a spot, a bigger spotlight. I mean, let's not kid ourselves here the kitchen rangers have a big spotlight in the ohl as it is they're one of the you know better organizations in the league but we always want that spotlight on our region don't we so let's hope that that comes through one thing i wanted to share on the show today i was in a drive-thru yesterday after work not to out the person or anything like that but it was the drive-thru on Iron Needles Boulevard and someone rear-ended me. (laughs) Seriously. It was a little love tap and there wasn't any damage or anything like that. But what are you doing in that drive-thru where you have to rear-end me? I just don't understand it. And I was visibly frustrated when it happened. My window was rolled down. I kind of jerked forward a little bit. But, you know... (laughs) I just don't understand what you're doing, that you're too distracted to know that there's a car right in front of you while you're in a drive-thru. I thought we already knew that, guys. Thought it was all well understood. I think I just have a target on my back because I drive a Civic. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570.